Well, welcome everybody to the beginning of Holy Week here at Christ the King. It's our second uh, Holy Week that we've done here, and uh, it's off to a great start. I'm really glad to see you all and to enter into this week together with you. And Holy Week, of course, is the time when we focus in on the entry of Jesus to Jerusalem and then his subsequent passion that he endured and his resurrection that we'll celebrate next Sunday where we get to say words that we haven't said for a while and we get to party and celebrate. And in case I forget to say it in the announcements, I put it in the email, everybody bring bells. If you can find bells, bring bells for next Sunday. It's going to be really great. But I shared this in this email this week, uh, but about 25% of the book of Matthew, about 31.2567% of the book of Mark approximately, and almost half the book of John, almost half the entire book of John, are dedicated to this week in the life of Jesus. Because I think it shows just how important this week is to the gospel and ultimately to the message and the work of Jesus. And so part of the reason that we put so much effort and spend so much energy and make so much investment in this week is that we want to join the gospel writers in focusing in on this time as not only the pivot point in the life of Jesus, but the pivot point truly in all of history. And so part of the way we join that is we put extra effort and focus and time into this week to say that this truly is the pivot point of all of our lives, both the passion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we embrace that together. And I'll just say this uh, on the side, just as, uh, as I've said many times during our Lenten season, it's the last time I'll say it, uh, until next year. All can, no one must, but most will benefit from entering into this extra intentional devotion together. And the seed I want to plant in your minds about Holy Week and about processing in with palms and waving the palms and all the things that we're going to do over this week is to bring up the image of Mary Magdalene who came into a house one day when Jesus was sitting with the disciples and she took a jar of expensive perfume and she broke it and she poured it on Jesus' feet as a sign of devotion and adoration. And all the disciples who thought logically like myself or maybe had an engineer mind or thought mathematically said, oh, what a waste. Do you know how many poor people could be fed with this perfume? Why would you waste perfume and pour it on Jesus' feet? Of course, Jesus saw it as an act of worship and glory and adoration and said, this, this action will be remembered throughout history. So as you think about Holy Week this week, there's a lot to it. It can feel like uh, sometimes there's, it takes some endurance. You might ask yourself, why are we doing all of these things? Especially if you're not from a liturgical background. But I can assure you, at least from how we're hoping to frame everything, it's all an act of devotion and it's all an act of adoration to the movement and work of Jesus Christ in our lives and what that means for the world. So again, all can, no one must, most will benefit. I do encourage you to enter in together with us this week. Well, Holy Week traditionally starts here on Palm Sunday, which is, of course, what we read where Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And today we're going to look at the way Jesus enters into Jerusalem and draw out from that two big ideas for what that means for how, not only how Jesus entered into Jerusalem, but really draw that out to how Jesus enters into all of our lives as we think about our faith and our walk together with him. 
And just to help us capture the weight and the tension of what is significant about Jesus entering into Jerusalem in this way, I want to start out by making a few observations. And I have to confess to you that uh, preaching on the liturgical days, Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Christmas Eve, are often the hardest sermons to prepare. They're just hard to pull together outlines. You're sitting there going, boo-hoo, poor Jesse. But anyways, I'll just say that it's the harder ones to prepare. And so for this message, I went to one of the Bible answer keys. I have several Bible answer keys. And for this message, I went to an outline prepared by one of the Bible answer keys that happens to be named Tim Keller. So I'm borrowing from his outline on this. But uh, we're in Matthew 21. We're going to look at the entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And I want to start with a few observations. First is this. The scene that we all reenacted so well, you all looked so good with your palm branches waving, comes right on the heels of what the gospel writers and what anybody who's been following Jesus up to this time would have considered a major crisis. Now, if you go back into Matthew chapter 20, there's this interaction between Jesus and two blind men. And the blind men, as Jesus is passing by, yell out, they say, uh, they say Son of David, have, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They call that out twice. Now, son of David is actually the messianic title of who Jesus is. It means the ultimate king. For those of you who know Greek, it means the telos king. It's the ultimate end-all, be-all king. Son of David is the messianic title. And this is the first time that somebody calls Jesus by his messianic title And Jesus doesn't immediately rebuke them and say, be quiet, wait, 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 now is not the time. So this subtle interaction that Jesus has with these two blind men is actually the first time that Jesus allows his messianic, ultimate king, son of David, the king that will reign and rule over all things, the first time that he allows that to be proclaimed in public. And what that means is that there was no going back from claiming that title. They said, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus goes up to them and says, doesn't say, shh, shh. He goes, uh, yes. What would you like me to do for you? Son of David, ultimate king, messianic king. Uh, yes, that's me. What would you like me to do for you? By acknowledging this title, Jesus has started a zero-sum game. He laid down the gauntlet. He, know that he knew that there was no going back from acknowledging this title in public, which is why he was always telling people to be quiet and to not share with others about that. As they say, in Asia, where I lived for eight years, one mountain cannot have two tigers. So once Jesus claimed, once Jesus took on the title of Messianic King as King of the world, there's no way any other segment of power would allow him to continue to exist. And this meant that Jesus was either truly the Messiah or he was just an imposter that was claiming this title. There was no more prophet or rabbi or interesting guy at this point. It was messianic king or nothing. So Jesus, as he's entering in Jerusalem, it's on the heels of some major tension that is building up as we read through the Gospels. That's the first observation. Second observation, Jesus is very much in control of his entry as he enters into Jerusalem. He orchestrates exactly what he wants. And so it wasn't like Jesus just happened to sort of stroll into Jerusalem and say, oh, hey, guys, oh, there's a donkey. Let's grab the donkey. And we got some palm branches. And it wasn't like it was this spontaneous thing only. But Jesus actually orchestrated exactly 
what he wanted, to enter into the way he wanted, to declare himself as the son of David, as the messianic king. He didn't do any of this lightly or by accident. So for one, he entered in, it says in in this chapter, Matthew 21, that he entered in from Bethany and Bethpage. Anybody remember when we last spoke about Bethany and Bethpage? Hint, hint, seven days ago. We were talking about that seven days ago when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, of all the places, of all the suburbs that Jesus would choose to enter into Jerusalem, he chose the one where he happened to do probably the greatest miracle he'd done in all of his ministry, Bethany and Bethpage. If you remember back to last week, he said, Lazarus, who was dead, come out of the tomb. And it said the crowds were in awe. Where were the crowds in awe? Bethany and Bethpage. And that's where Jesus chose to enter into Jerusalem. In fact, in fact, if you look at verses 9 and 10, it says this, and the crowds went before him, And that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it says, and it describes how the crowds actually were from Bethany and Bethpage, not from Jerusalem originally, but from Bethany and Bethpage, walking in together with Jesus. And when the people in Jerusalem saw the commotion, they joined in. They said, oh, what's going on? There's There's a parade. There's something big going on. And then they joined in. But Jesus actually orchestrated this crowd, this spontaneous crowd to not spontaneous crowd to walk in together with Jerusalem so he arranged the crowd he arranges the location he he arranges Bethany and Bethpage he arranges the crowd and lastly I'll just point out he arranges the steed the mighty steed or shall we say the donkey and I won't use the other word for a donkey here let's put ourselves here in the disciples shoes I was really trying to catch up with my notes that was not a pause for comedic relief (laughs) So by trusty steed, he chose a donkey. Now, it's interesting, if, we, if you were to imagine, if you were to put yourselves in the disciples' shoes, if you, were to, if you were to imagine that you were walking with Jesus, you suffered with him for three years, you received death threats by being next to Jesus and walking with him and sort of being pointed out, yet you saw Jesus do these amazing, miraculous things, and then finally Jesus says, yes, I am the son of David. I don't know how you would feel But if I were one of the disciples, I'd be like, all right, finally, this is the time. Look at this crowd around us. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go into Jerusalem. This is the time to claim your throne, Jesus. This is the time that we've all been waiting for. I can't wait to see what ministry I get to be in charge of when Jesus reigns. This is the time. But Jesus, you know, can I be your PR guy? You know, you're coming in as king, you know. This whole donkey thing doesn't quite work. It's this small, little, lowly animal. Kings ride in on white stallions and strong war horses. You know who rides in on donkeys? Servants. Jesus, this is not the steed of a king. It's actually something that a servant would ride on. You know, you you got all this power, so I think we'll stay with you, but let me just do your PR from here on out. Verse 5, it says, See your king comes to you gentle. So these are the three observations I wanted to start with. Jesus arranged the location. He knew exactly what he was doing. He came in as Messiah, the son of David, and he came in riding on a donkey, all on purpose, not haphazardly. So this scene here in Palm Sunday, as we consider this in our own lives, what these observations mean for us, I want to dwell on two ideas together with you on the way Jesus entered Jerusalem And really show how that mirrors 
the way that Jesus enters into all of our own lives. And they both relate to these choices that Jesus made. So first, how does Jesus enter into Jerusalem? How does he enter into Jerusalem? He enters to confront. He enters to confront. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, as we stated earlier, it's a zero-sum game. There's no turning around. There's no going into these seats of power and walking through the halls of power, claiming to be the son of David, the messianic king, and saying a day later, actually, I was just kidding, you know. That was just a parade for fun. There's no turning back from this. He came in to confront the truth. Really, if you read this gospel and the other gospels, you know that the tension has been rising for several chapters now. There's threats of stoning. There's backroom deals. There's threats and plans that are being hatched. Jesus knew that he was coming in to confront this ultimate truth. As one pastor said, he came in saying, either crown me or kill me. There was no other choice that Jesus offered. He came in to confront. And for us, this is actually the same way that Jesus enters into all of our lives. He confronts. He confronts our hearts. He confronts our idols. He confronts the things that we grab a hold of for our own comfort and our own security. Jesus comes in to confront what we have in our own hearts. There was a writer uh, named Reynolds Price who put it this way. He said, If 2,000 years of pious handling had not dimmed both the gospel story and its demands, the gospel would still be seen as the burning outrage it continues to be or as a work of madness as it would be. Jesus is either fully king or a madman. Jesus came to confront. There was no other choices. There was no middle ground as Jesus came into Jerusalem. In the same way as Jesus invites himself into our lives and we open the door to receive him, he asks us the same question. He confronts the same things in our own hearts. Will we receive him as king or will we not receive him as all, at all? He asks the same question to each one of us. And Jesus comes to us and he says, if you want my peace... If you want my joy, if you want to live in this new life that I promise, then you need to crown me with all of your life. Now, I love the symbolism and the images that we embrace here in our worship here at Christ the King. And just to give you a foretaste of one of, the image, one of my favorite images of the whole year is at the beginning of our Easter service next week, we're going to start with a service of light which is going to be in that room. It's going to be dark. And there's a part of the service where we take this giant candle and we walk it through the people. And I didn't realize it till last year when I, when, I, when I experienced it, but as we walk it through the people, we're actually all going to have to get out of the way of the light. And Stephen will have a frown on his face when he's carrying, just, just in case people don't get it. I'm kidding, no. But we'll, but we'll have to walk, with, we'll walk through this candle through the people, stop, Proclaim that the light has come. Walk through more people. Proclaim that the light has come. And walk through more people. Proclaim that the light has come. As an image to show that we make way for the light of God to come into our lives. It's a way to embrace this truth. That it's Jesus who comes in and claims his role as king of our hearts and king in our lives. And in regards to this question, this is part of why we picked the name for this church. Christ is king. This is what we embrace.
So part of what I'd want to invite you to do this week is to take stock of your lives, your desires, your habits, the idols, the things that you have in your hearts, the spheres of influence that God's given you, and ask, is Christ the king of this area of my life? Is Jesus confronting anything that I'm holding on to in my own life? Jesus enters into our hearts the same way he enters into Jerusalem to confront. And I'll be the first to admit I have things to offer him to let him be more king of my own heart. So that's the first thought for us to dwell on. Jesus came into Jerusalem to confront. The second one, and here's the wonderful grace of God. Verse 5, I already read it. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, when I say the word confront, again, we think of the same words that the disciples might have thought of. We think of a king riding in on a white stallion uh, with a bandana and some swords and saying, I'm here to confront the idols you have in your hearts. And that is true. Jesus is here to confront. But actually, the stage at this stage in God's revelations and his plans, Jesus comes into our hearts. He comes into Jerusalem and he comes into our hearts in the same way, humble, lowly, gentle, riding on a donkey. He enters in as a servant. Enters in vulnerable. And it's interesting as you look back through the Gospels, the people that Jesus had lots of conversations with, on a percentage wise, even more than others, was he talked quite often to widows, talked quite often to those ostracized by society, those without power. And incidentally, incidentally, this is a good Bible trivia for you the first person in the whole Bible, in the Gospels, that Jesus revealed himself to as the messianic king, the son of David. Again, this wasn't public, but privately. The first person he said that I am this messianic king that the Old Testament is talking about was a story that we read a few weeks ago, the woman at the well. Someone who's ostracized, someone who, according to society at that time, didn't have value, didn't have standing, didn't have importance, and yet Jesus chose that she was going to be the first person that revealed his true nature too. It shows the wonderful grace of God that he comes lowly, humble, gentle, inviting, meeting every one of us exactly where we are. Jesus is confrontational, but his welcome is always gentle, humble, and lowly. He is king, but he is our present and loving So for us, this idea of Jesus confronting our hearts, just like the service of Palm Sunday, can feel discordant. It can feel strange as we wrestle with our own identities and our own desires that Jesus would come and confront the things that are so often so intertwined with how we want to live lives. But Jesus, the King, the humble, gentle servant King, invites us to surrender over to him in a gentle and lowly way, yet in a way that offers all things over together with him. So, again, I say, do you want true peace? Do you want true joy? Do you want true life, not manufactured joy or manufactured life? Jesus invites us to crown him as king. Now, just to conclude, the reason that Jesus, the reason that the crowd turned on Jesus later in the week, the reason we went from Hosanna in the highest and we're all laughing with palm branches on purpose to that very strong reading from the book of Mark of the crucifixion of Jesus 
The reason that the crowd turns on a dime, it seems, in just a week is because they had an agenda for Jesus to be king. And their agenda for Jesus was that he would be the one that liberated them from the Romans and took power in a temporary political sense. And Jesus knew that this vision, albeit important to them because they were under impression, this present tense political liberation, although good for them at that time, was myopic. Jesus knew that while the Romans were an oppressor, the greater oppressor was sin, and the even greater oppressor as a result of sin was death. So Jesus could have turned to them and said, yes, I can liberate you from the Romans, but then after I liberate you from the Romans, who's going to liberate you from sin? Who's going to liberate you from death? Who's going to liberate you from the need to achieve and to grasp, to try to form your identity out of thin air when I offer you the fullness of your identity here in my person? Who's going to liberate you from the tyranny of the emptiness of your souls? He didn't come to liberate them only from the Romans or from any political power. He asked them to look beyond their own expectations and to see him as the true messianic king. We can do the same thing when we come to Jesus with expectations for how we want him to work and where we want him to work and what we want his work to look like in our lives. Jesus so often invites us to look beyond and through our expectations into the fullness of life that he has for us. So Christ the King, this is the name that this church bears as a church. Let us respond. Let us respond to the name this church bears. Let us respond to this passage let us respond to the way Jesus enters into Jerusalem to confront, but also to invite us into gentle love. Let us respond. Let us crown him as king in our lives. Let us welcome the confrontation that he brings. Let us embrace his loving gentleness with us as our king. Let me pray. Lord, we do thank you again for this day, and we ask that you would give us hearts that look to you, hearts whose thirsts are quenched by you, hearts with new eyes and new life and new ears to see and to hear and to experience you. We pray, Lord, as we think about the things that we grab a hold of and the life we try to create for ourselves outside of you, we ask that you would help us to respond and to give over all things to you, Lord. We pray that you would be king of our hearts king of this church, and we know that you will one day be king of the world and all things. Thank you, Lord, for entering into our humanity, entering into Jerusalem, knowing the consequences for our sake and for the glory of your Father's name. We pray all of these things in your great and holy name. Amen.